Hello and welcome to Balagan, the podcast that will put things in order for a better understanding of Israeli politics. I am Kobe Cohen, a former political advisor and currently a political columnist and Israel educator. In many of my conversations with my American friends and family, I have noticed that Israeli politics is challenging to understand and quite blurry at times. So I'm here to explain how it works, who are the different players, and why the different players are acting the way they act. So if you're interested in getting what's happening in Israel, that's your place. My podcast will be thorough and brief, with many guests, giving you the best information about Israeli politics and society. It will deal with the structure of the political system in Israel, the different groups of interest, the players' history, along with analysis of what is happening today. I promise to be as objective as possible and guarantee it will always be interesting. So stay tuned. In previous episodes, we gave an historical view of what happened to the Likud party from the early days of Jabotinsky and uh, Begin through the 80s and up to the end of Tzrak Shamir Zera in 1992. And then, since 1993, or actually a bit before, There was a new person who arrived to the Likud, and he's been in the lives of Israelis ever since. And of course, I'm talking about uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, or Benjamin Netai, as some will say. And I have here with me my dear friend Eli Chazan to speak about Netanyahu's era. I would say uh, in advance, Netanyahu is a very controversial person. I will give you most of the time to speak. Of course, we'll have a debate on some of the issues. But I really want you to give us a brief about when did Netanyahu join public life? What did he do and how he was able, by the way, to beat the famous princes of the Likud, the Nesichim, who were the ones who were uh, supposed to be Tzhak Shamir's successors. So I'm handing the mic to you, Eli, and thank you again thank for you joining us. With pleasure, with pleasure. You cannot speak about Netanyahu without speaking about his father, because when you understand his father, you can understand the personality of Netanyahu. So I want, at the beginning, to speak about Benzion Netanyahu, because it is crucially important to understand the personality of Netanyahu. By the way, not only against the left wing in Israel, but even inside Likud, you spoke about the princes, So let's explain the phenomenon. Ben-Zion Netanyahu was a genius. I mean, for the leftists in Israel, he was a kind of a stupid, I would say, but for the rightists, mainly for the Likudniks, he was a genius. Let's speak about Ben-Zion Netanyahu, Zev Jabotinsky. If you remember, we spoke in the first episode about Zev Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky had a kind of admiration to the British mandate, to the British uh, administration, to the British in general, to Britain, United Kingdom. And although he led the resistance against Britain, against the British mandate, he really admired them. I mean, you can see it in his, you know, writings, and it goes again and again and again, simultaneously. In 1938-1939, Ben-Zion Netanyahu has become the secretary or the assistant of Zev Jabotinsky. And in fact, he is changing the complete attitude of Jabotinsky towards the British. He told him more or less, as you know, it's more deliberate, but he told him more or less, Britain is in a collapse, like the other Western countries, and you need to look into the United States. If you want to join a superpower, the new superpower is the United States, and therefore you need to focus on the Americans 
less on the British. Now, we have to remember the background. We are speaking about the 1930s. Britain and France still, you know, superpower, European superpowers. And in fact, Benzio Netanyahu is like forecasting the future, that the United States is going to be the future leader of the world. And by the way, Jabotinsky agreed. For instance, people tend to forget, but Jabotinsky passed away in New York in 1940 because he accepted, and of course, due to the, to the situation at that time, but he accepted the attitude of Benzio Netanyahu, who, by the way, was active in the United States itself during the World War II and during the Holocaust. Netanyahu was what we call the first Ishas Bara with other, you know, colleagues. He made a lot of public diplomacy for Zionism. He promoted a lot of public diplomacy in order to recognize Holocaust and to promote the American forces in order to fight against Hitler. People, again, tend to forget that until 1941, America was not part of the World War. The Americans promoted the isolated policy. Yeah. But ever since 1941, until 1945, Benzio Netanyahu was one of the leading forces to bring more Americans to fight against the Hitler or to explain the phenomenon about the need to bomb Auschwitz and to release the Jews. That is the background. He's coming back to Palestine or he's coming back to the state of Israel in 1948. And his goal was to be a lecturer in the Hebrew University. Another thing, I was growing up in the Israeli education system. Uh, if you speak about the, the Spanish Inquisition, that the Jews were persecuted by the Spanish, and therefore they were martyrs. We're talking uh, about 1498. 1492. In fact, 1492. 1492, sorry. Yeah, yes. 1492 was the end of the Spanish Inquisition against the Jews who were expelled to Europe and to other places in the world. When we grew up in the Israeli education system, we were thinking that uh, the Jews rebelled against accepting Christianity. Ben Zion Netanyahu promoted a new thesis, and he, of course, he proved it, that most of the Jews accepted Christianity because they wanted to integrate in the Spanish society of that time. In fact, he was a pioneer in his uh, research. But he claims that he was not accepted to the Hebrew University because of his political uh, affiliation. I read a few, I would say, uh, testimonies that people said, no, it was not good enough. But in any case, we have to remember that he was one of the editors of the Hebrew Encyclopedia, which was a kind of a national important Project. product. Yeah. Exactly, as educating product. But in any case, even inside Herut party, Menachem Begin did not want him inside the party. This is why Ben Zion Netanyahu... And, and why was that, by the way? Because Menachem Begin was, in fact, like any other political uh, leader, he didn't want competition. And please do remember that Ben Zion Netanyahu had a personality. And again, Begin did not want competition and therefore did not let him join easily to Herut party or at least did not integrate him into the leadership. This is why Ben Zion Netanyahu, with no job, had to immigrate to the United States. You know, a lot of Israelis had a lot of criticism against Netanyahu. You are more than American than an Israeli. And he and does have a Polish English, and it comes from growing up in Philadelphia. No doubt about it, but we have to remember the circumstances. The same people who criticize him tend to forget that their, I would say, ancestors led to this situation. But that's the truth. <laughs> In any case, as I so told te him... So te technically, you should thank them, no? Exactly, that's what I told him once. 
you should thank the Israeli left that did not accept your father and therefore he needed to immigrate to the United States. Then in the United States, he has become a distinguished professor, again, specializing in the Jews of, as we call the golden tour of the Spanish period, especially about uh, Dona Barbanel, which is a well-known figure of the Spanish Jews during yeah. the Middle Ages. In any case, Netanyahu grew up in the United States with no intention to go into politics. He considers himself as a future businessman. By the way, he used to work for a lot of Boston consulting group and, and companies as such. But his brother, Yoni Netanyahu, which is, again, very famous in Israel, was supposed yeah. to... He, he, he led the Antebe operation and he died in that operation. He was the only Israeli soldier who fell there in battle. Yeah, but he was supposed to be the politician from the family. I mean, he was really a unique persona. He was the favorite son, you can say. Not necessarily, because, again, we don't have all the knowledge, all the information about it, but, you know, it reminds me very much of the Kennedys. John Kennedy was not the first choice. He was the second choice after his brother was killed as a pilot. Yeah. It's quite the same. I mean, Netanyahu, until the end of the 1970s, did not consider himself as a politician. But, uh, you know, destiny calls him in 1976 and later. He's starting to organize a lot of conferences about terror and how we can fight against terrorism. And things he established like the Yoni Netanyahu Institute for uh, Terrorism Research. Against terrorism. In fact, that was his beginning in the political world. Even before that, when he was a student in the United in MIT. States, yeah, he was uh, invited by uh, the consul of that time of Israel in Boston, Coletta Vital, later right. became an MK of Labour Party, and yeah. he started to lecture about Israel. And we have to remember, we are speaking about the 1970s, Israel has become a kind of an isolated country, was portrayed as a racist in 1975, the United Nations get a resolution about comparing Zionism into racism. And in that battlefield, Netanyahu, we discover Netanyahu as a unique persona who can explain the policy of the state of Israel in a very logical way. And this is how he starts. And then in 1976, he understood after the death of Yoni that he has the chance to integrate or to be a politician, in fact. Now, we have to remember, he grows up in a family that has a lot of political, I would say, awareness. And that's what's happened until the beginning of the 1980s. In 1982, he has become a political advisor in the Israeli embassy in Washington. He was brought by Moshe Arens. The days are the day of the first Lebanese war. Israel is invading Lebanon. And the embassy needed someone who can explain the policy of the state of Israel under a lot of criticism. And Netanyahu has become a kind of a key figure in a sense that the American media loved him very much, especially CNN, some other TV stations and things like that. And he became like, as we call in Israel, a prodigy, a wonder in a sense. In 1984, he was appointed by Yitzhak Shamir. If you remember in 1984, we have the unity government. And he was appointed by Yitzhak Shamir to be ambassador to the United to the Nations. Again and again. We need to say, you mentioned uh, Misha Arens, and Misha Arens actually was Netanyahu's godfather in the Likud for a long time. Yeah. Um, he started with him in the Israeli embassy in D.C., and then later on, when Netanyahu came back, he was still under Arens' wings. 
Yeah, you are completely right. Don't forget, they came from the same political thoughts. Jews, nationalists with American influence and revisionists. I mean, they believed in Jabotinsky and in Herzl very much, and therefore they thought alike in many ways. In any case, one thing that I want to emphasize about Netanyahu was very active in the United Nations. And in the Israeli political arena, people looked for someone who is special. We have to remember 1980s in Israel, this is a very complicated times. The politicians have a very bad name, not as corrupt, but not as clean politicians. At that time, Israel is a closed state. If you speak about economy, if you speak about media, and Netanyahu was like a magician. He came from the United States in 1988 to the primaries inside Likud. The princes of Likud did not like him because we spoke about it, in, I believe, in the third episode, because they thought that at least one of them will be the future leader of Likud. And in any case, it's not going to be Netanyahu. They despised him. They despised his attitude, the American attitude. And in fact, he was like a pioneer in the sense that he brought, I would say, a behavior that others imitated later. Right. They could not understand. For instance, there is a very famous story, if you read in the biography of Netanyahu, the primaries in Likud usually takes all day long. And in the hot Israeli summer, you get sweat. It's quite noisy. You sweat a lot. <laughs> exactly. And then during the primaries in 1988, Netanyahu, he hired a caravan. And then he used to change his clothes every two or three hours without being sweat. All the other politicians of Likud, they could not understand how come. Now, of course, today everyone do it, but Netanyahu was the first one to do it in 1988. I would say that he is the first Israeli politician who realized that image has a lot in selling. He is a great salesman, so he knew that. Look at Kobe, there is one more thing. We have to remember the era, the circumstances. Right. A lot of Israelis could not stand anymore the Israeli political world. A lot of Israelis could not stand anymore the economy. If you remember, we spoke about the hyperinflation. We spoke about, right. I guess you disagree, but I tell you the ultra-socialism of the state. People could not stand it anymore. Netanyahu was the first one to come and to speak about, you know, open up the market. Another thing that I want to emphasize to our listeners in Israel, if you are bringing new idea as a politician, you are becoming very popular. Yair Lapid is a good example. He became very popular because he was new. Benny Gantz, for that regard, is the second example as well. Benny Gantz is not the best example because Benny Gantz was gathered by, you know, the people who gathered around Benny Gantz, the majority of them were just anti-Netanyahu. So, With Yair Lapid, brought... I think it's a better example because Yair Lapid, even though some will say that he doesn't really bring anything new, he brought a different kind of conversation to the table. And that's, I think, what Netanyahu did. Netanyahu was not apologetic. He had the charisma. He still had the charisma. And, you know, he was actually fresh because he wasn't in the small uh, muddy pond of the Israeli politics. He came from the world, you know, he was speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he had a polished close. English. Hey. So he didn't get the stains of the Israeli politics on him. Yeah, and for that regard, it was a magic for a lot of Likudniks. Think about it. And again, in order to understand it, we have to remember the era. Israel was a closed country. I mean, it was rare that Israelis will go abroad. Some of the Israelis used to go abroad. Today, of course, that is the norm until Corona, but 
in that days. And then... You're they, talking about traveling, not immigrating. It's important to say. Traveling. Yeah, yeah I'm speaking yeah. about traveling. And it's not only that. Think about it, that we had only one TV channel until 1993. But uh, a good one. <laughs> I disagree, but... Okay, let's leave it as such. Only two radio stations, two radio authorities in Israel. Today we have endless of uh, numbers. But it was a completely different era, and Netanyahu was a kind of a new magician. He brought a new attitude, and it was magical to those Mizrahi and those Ashkenazi Likudnik that Netanyahu can break the old political system. And in fact, that was the reality, because in the end, he broke it. I can give you an example. Until 1992, like now, we could vote only on one party. And we spoke about it in the first segment, I believe. And then Netanyahu was the decisive... He voted vote. against the Likud's party. He voted against the party. It was the determined voice that promoted the bill that in the end determined that we are going to vote in two ways, one for a party and one for the prime minister. And in fact, it crowned Netanyahu four years later when he beat Shimon Peres in 1996. More than that, we are speaking about the development in the Israeli media. And Netanyahu was the first one to bring his personal life into the media. And it was charming to a lot of Israelis because until then, They had a lot of criticism. They knew that something happens behind the scene in the Israeli political system. Netanyahu made it visible. This is something new that he brought. More than that... Until was... one point that he started complaining that... Of course. They are, that they are being... Uh... <laughs> But I would say that it serves him well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He knew how to do it. More than that, he was the first one to be intellectual politician in a sense that he wrote a book Even before he was elected, he wrote books. And when he was the leader of the opposition in 1993... On that, right. I would say that he may be the first one out of the Likud. I mean, you had a lot of politicians writing books. Ba'even, uh, Shimon Peres, you yeah, know... I'm not sure. Doing the term, please check it. But in any yeah, case... Yeah, if you'll check Peres's history, and I'm not talking about Rabin and Pinkas Shirut, because Pinkas Shirut was basically a book to target uh, Shimon Peres. <laughs> But... You had a lot of politicians that, let's be honest, politicians, some of them are more intelligent than others. And you will see from time to time somebody who is also, you know, has a philosophy someone, and... A, I agree. Someone from Likud, but what I wanted to say from the beginning, that it was comprehensive. He yeah. spoke about ideology and he made it very simple. Very clear, yes. Very clear and very simple. That was his uniqueness. He spoke the language that people wanted to hear. I mean, they could not stand anymore the state's role in policy. And Netanyahu came and said, it's very easy, we can do it. And it was very realistic to implement it. Let me give you an example, a very good one. Netanyahu said that we should not go into the Oslo Agreement, and in the end, it will bring terror into the cities of Israel. It was in 1993. In fact, six months later, that's exactly what started to happen. I mean, it was like a vision or like a prophecy of a politician. Uh, we had terror before. No, no, no. The thing that changed is Kobe, that... Check the facts. Before Ellie, the Oslo Agreement, no one committed suicide. After the Oslo no, Agreement... Well, you can say that nobody committed suicide before uh, the massacre in Marat HaMachpela. Okay, but it so... Matter. No, but you're If saying you about, about suicidal... If you think but, about but, the fact, Netanyahu yeah. said before the Oslo agreements that Arafat will bring terror into well, the heart of the centers of Israel. And as a prime minister, he didn't cancel the Oslo Accords, even if he could, he could have done it. 
I'm so, so happy that you, you make it very clear, but Netanyahu said before the election of 1996, I don't like the Oslo agreements. I despise them very much, but with all due respect, Israel is a democracy. There is the principle of the continuity of the obligations of the previous government, and therefore I'm going to change it. And that's exactly what he did. He, he, he did everything he can to minimize the accords and not to promote them. But officially he didn't cancel them. But let's say that the accords were like a plant that wasn't watered. <laughs> a neutral, a neutral, a neutral. I completely agree. He had a commitment as a Democrat on one hand. On the other hand, he created what we call the reciprocity or the mutuality policy. If the Palestinians will promote peace, we do it from the other side. In fact, he exposed Arafat from the beginning of what we already knew. By the way, we must remind to our listeners that after the Rabin's assassination, by the way, Netanyahu was accused of, you know, inciting and things like that. This is something we cannot accept at all. And of course, we can uh, prove it. I know that you disagree. You can bring evidence. It doesn't mean that you're proving it. Netanyahu was the head of opposition. And yeah. as the head of opposition, what he used to do, let's say to our listeners, because some of them are younger, he used to come to every place that you had a terror attack. Of course, and use, the, and use the media, you know, when he still had bodies behind him and to speak against the government. Now, that's yeah. something that opposition would do, but he let the mob rule the streets in a way. Kobe, it is completely untrue. First of all... Uh, I lived in Jerusalem, Eli, and I've been to those protests. So I live in Jerusalem, and I've been to the protests of the other side. I'm going to give you some proofs. For instance, for so many years, Netanyahu was accused of telling Rabin a traitor. No one could ever find, I would say, expression like that. Netanyahu said the opposite many times. If you want... You One time speak. only. In Kikar Tzion, two weeks before uh, Rabin was assassinated in October 1995, Okay, okay. When, they, when they were standing on the balcony, yeah. uh, the mob was going wild down, and I was in the crowd, by the way. Okay, and Netanyahu... No, not as a supporter, by the way. I came to see what's going on. He didn't say a single word. Okay, uh, and if I will prove you otherwise, that he said many words during this demonstration, what would you say? Well, that I would say with Netanyahu, because that's something that he does until now, yeah. It okay. used to be lip tax, we call it in Hebrew. Masfatayim. I'm, I'm saying that when he's using his language, his voters can understand what he means. And that's his real it's so magic. Funny, Kobe. It's so funny because you know that the agent of the Shin Bet promoted the incitement. It was sent by them. They knew that they do it. For instance, there are some uh, cuts, it, some it, pictures it, of Rabin. We, if you, you want, we can do a separate episode about the assassination okay. and it's Hak Rabin. Okay. But, okay. We are not going to agree, of course. We are coming from two different sides. In any case, I'm writing to myself to send you those proofs. In any case, we have to remember that one of the reasons that led to the victory of Netanyahu in 1996 was the terror attacks in March 1996. In fact, it was a complete failure of Shimon Peres. When they started the election campaign, Peres led in a high percentage. Really high, yes. Over Netanyahu. By the way, and this is another thing, Netanyahu used to support the government during the times of war. For instance, in March 1996, if I remember correctly, but in any case, it was during the beginning of 1996. Yeah, in grapes of wrath in Lebanon. Exactly. And Netanyahu supported Paris out loud. You can see it in the media. The left wing in Israel will never do the same. 
I believe that this is one of the things why people well, tend to... Well, because it all depends what are you trying to promote. Eventually, the Lebanon war had the support of the Labour Party and uh, most people until one point that people started to ask, okay, so what exactly are we doing there? It's called democracy, Elid, and it's okay to criticize the government. I'm, I'm not saying that... The, no, I tell you what I mean. That Netanyahu was accused of, you know, being not responsible, even not responsible opposition. And I'm saying the vice versa. In any case, what I mean, that in 1996, Netanyahu did the unbelievable. It was unbelievable in a way that he was against all odds. He was able to win Shimon Peres. We have to remember that during this time, all the establishment, all the media was against him. He was portrayed as a fascist. He was portrayed as someone who does not belong to the state of Israel. But in any case, he made the unbelievable... And, and we uh, need to remind uh, the audience that it was just half a year after the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. Rabin was assassinated on November 4th, 1995, and the elections took place in uh, May of 1996. By the way, I would say two things that Netanyahu should be grateful for is that first thing he should be grateful for Chaim Ramon, okay, uh, that in my opinion, and we can discuss it also, was on purpose trying to block a good campaign because he said, ah, you know, if Peres is going to lose, I'm going to run against Netanyahu and I'm going to win. <laughs> But they really had a lousy campaign. The left wing doesn't know how to make campaigns. <laughs> yes, yeah, While Netanyahu, by the way, had a very effective campaign, He was the first one talking about another thing he brought from America, okay, was Arthur Finkelstein, who was a strategic advisor for many campaigns in the Republican Party prior and even after. And it was the first time Arthur Finkelstein came to Israel. He checked what is the Israeli mindset, and he figured out that you need to make it to us and them, but in the term of are you Jewish or are you Israeli? And that was the first time that it was used Netanyahu Tov La Yehudim, a week prior to the elections by Not Chabad, yeah. is good for the Jews. And the other thing was that Paris is going to divide Jerusalem. No, And that was very, very effective on people's minds. I mean... It's not only that. I would call it the victory of what was considered as a minority. In Israel, created a kind of a coalition, the religious, ultra-religions, the Mizrahi, the right-wingers before that. But I truly believe that the most important reason why Netanyahu was victorious was the terror attacks of 1996. I mean, I remember that. And I remember that uh, Paris was hopeless against terror. And moreover, it is so astonishing to remember that uh, a few weeks before the election, Bill Clinton tried to help to Paris. Yeah, with the Taba. <laughs> no, in Sharm el-Sheikh. Sharm el-Sheikh, right. In Egypt. No, it was in Taba, in Egypt, yeah. It was in Egypt. Oh, in it was Veidat Sharem, right. It was exactly. Veidat Sharem. Yeah, usually I'm not mistaken about these things. Invited all the leaders in the world, and it was not enough to Shimon Peres to win. It shows you how failure Shimon Peres was as a prime minister. Not as a prime minister, but as a candidate. As a prime minister as well. Because if he would have been a good prime minister, he could win, but he never did it personally. Ah, but in any case, a, again, we are coming... It's a matter of campaigns. It's not a matter of prime minister. <laughs> okay, I can agree. In any case, what we have to remember that Netanyahu was only 47 years old. He brought a new attitude. First of all, he was very young. I mean, usually they compare him to Rabin in his first term in 1974. 
But you have to remember that Rabin was crowned, in fact, as a prime minister after a crisis, after the Yom Kippur War, and Netanyahu yeah. was elected. Rabin was not elected in 1974 by the people, and Netanyahu was elected, and in fact... Well, the political era was different. I mean, uh, it no was... You were elected within the party, just like in the Likud, that it was, you know, no, what, at the beginning, without the primaries. What I meant is that he was not elected by the people because... It was right. Uh, Golda stepped down and they nominated the rabbin. Now, what we have to remember, if I spoke about the percentage that Netanyahu had the smallest victory in the history of the state of Israel, he had 50.5% and Shimon Peres had only 49.5%. If you look at the seats in the Knesset, Labour gets more in 1996, 34-32, but that was the system... And in fact, Netanyahu was the first one as a prime minister to act as an elected personal prime minister. And we discovered that yeah. this system is catastrophic. It happens twice more in 1999 and in 2001. In 2001. And after Sharon was elected in 2001, the first action of his government was to abolish, as we call the direct election of the prime minister. And another and side case, effect was, by the way, in overall, that it really hurt the two big parties, the Likud and the Labour, that at one point, even after cancelling the direct voting for prime minister, they still stayed small. I mean, you had a lot more uh, parties from the right, and suddenly you had a big uprise of the centre, first with Shinui and then with Yeshatid, but it really split the votes between a lot more parties, which made forming a coalition a lot harder. No doubt about it. I tell you why. First of all, it is not the only reason. I mean, the direct vote of prime minister, it's not the only reason. What we discover that the Israeli society has become more fragmented and more separated in the 1990s. We are speaking about the immigration of the... The tribes. So- <laughs> exactly. Former Soviet Jews. We are speaking about an era that the Mizrahi Jews who were discriminated, I spoke about it in the previous episodes, were discriminated, well... This is the time when they had the stage. We are speaking about changes inside the society. We are speaking about the rise of the Arab society in Israel. More and more Arab MKs, more and more Arab power, more and more Arab votes. And in the past, it wasn't like that. Usually, they used to be belong to the bigger parties. To the Mapai, bigger parties, Arab, exactly. And Likud and Gachal. Today, it's more yes. fragmented. And we are speaking about an era, the 1990s, the voice of the individual. Israel has become less collective society and more individual society. And in that case, more individual voices has more voice out loud, I would say. And yeah, it led in the end to the destruction of the stability of the Israeli political system. Because ever since we became like Italy, election campaigns every three, every two years and things like that, no doubt it changes completely the Israeli society. What I wanted to say about Netanyahu I'll speak short about his first term. First of all, the Israeli society was divided into two. Either you are... Uh, I already see that we'll need to do another recording for his second term. So we'll continue with this until, you know, the end of his first term in 1999. And then we'll make a second one. What happened from 1999? Okay. In any case, the Israeli society was divided into two in general. Either you are pro-Bibi or you are against Bibi. That was the division. You have to remember, Israel is a completely different state. We don't have the social media at that time. All the media, with no exclusion, was against Netanyahu. All the establishment 
was against Netanyahu, it was almost impossible for him to win the election. More than that, I want to speak about the princes, the same princes who did not like Netanyahu. If you remember, I was speaking about them, of, you know, thinking about the being future leader of Likud and how Netanyahu took the crown from them. They had a lot of criticism against him, by the way. It was, I would call it a special criticism. I mean, there is one law for Netanyahu and one law for the others. What does it mean? They used to accuse him of being deceived, that deceived the politicians. Well, he is not different than Shimon Peres, for instance, than Menachem Begin, for instance. They used to accuse him of, you know, losing the values. In the end, he has no difference than any other politician that I know. But I call it the election of 1999. This is the election of the revenge. A lot of princes from Likud who did not accept Netanyahu's, I would say, attitude, decided to turn against him. Dan Meridor was the first one to create center party with Amon Lipkin Shachak, the previous chief of staff of the IDF, and Romney Milo, another prince of Likud. The second one was Benny Begin to create a right-wing party who did not make the threshold. But the image was that the party is losing the princess. The mayor of Jerusalem stayed in Likud in 1999, but he turned against Netanyahu by supporting Ehud Barak by declaration that Barak will not divide Jerusalem. And in fact, if you look at it, Netanyahu needed to fight against everyone from inside. He lost the election in 1999. It was a big defeat. He could get 19 seats. That was the smallest until then. And he goes into, not into the opposition, but he decided to take a break. I think that it's more than that. I mean, because you are running here on three years, you know, during his era, and we haven't touched his economic approach. And I do want to circle it, though, that when you're okay, talking... let's speak about N- Netanyahu is a very controversial person. He's very charismatic. He has the killer instinct. I mean, he's the most efficient politician that I know. I would say, you know, in the terms of a democracy, because I can't compare him, for example, to Vladimir Putin, because you can't say that you really have a democracy in, uh, in Russia, you know. Okay. <laughs> but you're talking about the princess of the Likud and all of that, and Netanyahu did tend, until he came back to power, to fight with a lot of his, I would say, allies. And he brought on himself a lot of hatred and anger by the way he acted. And I think one of the lessons that he learned, if I'm, you know comparing the Likud in 1996 to the Likud today, the Likud today has a lot more yes-mens than in the past. I completely disagree. I tell you why. First Um, of all... Let me just finish uh, the... the, I want to go back to it in our next episode. For now, I want us to discuss, okay, because I do think that Netanyahu has a great learning system. I mean, he made a lot of errors in his first term as a prime minister, you know, including, by the way, with his partners, the ultra-Orthodox and others. And we can go to the Hebron Agreement, the Y Accords that eventually made him step back from some areas in the city of Hebron. And then he lost his base. And a couple of things that he learned is first, always stick to your base, I think. It started in 2015, not before that. I agree. His learning curve is good. I mean, politically wise, I'm saying. Of course, he's a genius when you speak as a politician. No, but you have to remember, and please remember the context. And I mean, Netanyahu obligated to promote the Oslo Accords as we spoke, but with a lot of limitations. He said, 
I'm not going to go on unless the Palestinians will understand their commitments against terror and really believe in peace. And that's what he did. I tell you what's his trouble, the same trouble that Menachem Begin did with the rightist. They cannot understand, and I'm speaking about the ultra The hard right. The hard right. The, the Meshichim, the Messiah ones. They cannot understand that in the end, Netanyahu is not the leader of only of the right block. He's the leader of the state of Israel. And in that regard, he must take into consideration a lot of things, not only the excuses of the right wing. And look, they did the same to Yitzhak Shamir in 1992. We spoke about it during the Madrid conference after he came back from Madrid by not giving anything to the Arabs. Just uh, because he was speaking about exactly. it. Exactly. They led to his failure and they led into the early election of 1992 when we lost. They did the same in 1999. They tended to forget. And even today, when you look at the deal of the century, they tend to forget that there is a reality and they are not alone in the world. There are some other, I would say, publics, some rivals, I would say, that you need to consider. And they did not understand it. And they did the same to Netanyahu in 1999. They could not understand that there are some obligations of the Oslo Agreement. We didn't like it. We despised the Oslo Agreement. But with all due respect, Netanyahu had a commitment to go on with it, as I told you, with all his remarks, as we call it. They did not accept him. And of course, they led to the rise of Ehud Barak. They led into the early election. And they lost Netanyahu as a leader. Why I'm saying that? Because for a lot of writers, the second intifada in 2001, was a kind of a proof that we led to the failure of Netanyahu and we don't need to do it again. I'm speaking on behalf of a lot of writers that I know that have a lot of criticism against Netanyahu, but they do remember what is the alternative in their point of view. So we're coming to the end of this episode. And actually, you know, Netanyahu is really, if we're putting Ben-Gurion and uh, Begin aside, he's the most present leader in Israel's life in the past, 30 to almost 35 years. So we have a lot more to cover. And I think that we're going to take a break here in 1992 after Netanyahu lost the elections to Ehud Barak. In 1999, sorry. And we'll come back to it in our next episode. What happened since? What did Netanyahu do? And the steps he made in order to come back to power, including some mistakes he did, like handing out the steering wheel to Ariel yeah, Sharon, because nobody believed he's going to become a prime minister. Yeah, and we need and, to speak about it. The attitude yeah, yeah, of, of course. the left in Israel. It's not the attitude of the left. We're talking about Netanyahu now. And the steps he made, you know, it was a courageous step to go and become the minister of finance throughout economic crisis in 2001. Under Ariel Sharon, three, sorry, under Ariel Sharon as prime minister. So we will come back to it with another episode that we'll call it Netanyahu Zera, Chelek Bet, Chapter B. <laughs> okay, with pleasure. Okay, so I, w- I really want to thank you, Eli. If you have uh, one more thing to tell to our listeners, then feel free. If I have to conclude the term of 1999, Netanyahu learned a lot. I want to tell a story about him. Every time I meet him, he tells me something new. Netanyahu is trying to learn every time something new. And I truly believe that in 1999, he learned a lesson that his political behavior must change. If I have to conclude, and we can see it later, 
although he's under a lot of criticism from the left wing and the media in Israel, he learned a big lesson and I'll speak about it later. Yeah, definitely. I'm one of the critics, so we'll have a lot to speak. <laughs> But he definitely have the best learning system uh, in Israel. We'll see what's going to happen these days when those are hard times around the world and in Israel also. But thank you, Eli, and looking forward to record another episode with you shortly. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now and have a great day.